everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of the First Word Podcast. My name is Alex, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike. Uh, today we're recording an episode discussing another one of the big fall films that we've all been waiting for, Ad Astra, directed by James Gray. And joining us today as uh, our guest for this discussion is John Bleasdale. He's a freelance film writer um, for outlets uh, based in the UK, and, like Sight and Sound, The Times, The Guardian. And he also covers film festivals for Cineview. Um, I met John a few years ago at the Cannes Film Festival, and uh, we've sort of been friends ever since, uh, hanging out at festivals when we see each other, and um, mainly arguing about films nonstop, uh, which is actually one of my favorite things about you, John. So um, thank you for joining us. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure. It's always always good fun to to refine my own opinions by brushing them against your incorrect ones. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, I mean, look. Especially at film festivals, we all go in and we all argue about films, but there's something about your, uh, the way you express your opinion about a certain film that not only makes me believe it, <laughs> but makes me uh, consider more about that I hadn't considered before. <laughs> like, there's just something uh, through your, your, your expression yeah. and your analysis that, it, that I really appreciate. So, um, actually, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on about Ad Astros. I wanted to get a well-rounded conversation about this film, this film specifically. Um, and actually, one of the first things you, you uh, or we were both at the Venice Film Festival a couple of, uh, I don't know, about a month ago at this point. Um, and there was one film I really wanted to ask you about because it's, uh, it was like the, one of the last films we saw there. And I'm very curious. Um, you really loved it. And I read your review and I've just been wondering if I could pick your brain about it a little bit, um, which is Waiting for the Barbarians, which is this film... Um, uh, I think it stars Johnny Depp and uh, uh, what's his name? Now I forget the other guy's name. <laughs> um, uh, and it's the first English language film from Chiro, Chiro Guerra, a Colombian film director um, yeah. of Embrace of the Serpent. Uh, and he, he made this film that's, I don't know if it's adapted from something, but it's basically this... Uh, I would say very obvious, but also a trying not to be obvious attempt at criticizing, um, the, like the the idea of a, a imperialism and a, a greater force kind of taking over a land that's run by local people who've lived there forever, and it focuses on this one guy who. Um, He's kind of like the 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 local guy who has lived there for a long time, and. Um, Sorry, this is Mark Rylance plays this guy, uh, the 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 magistrate of this town, yeah, the and then BFG. Johnny Depp comes in. Yeah, and the, and and Johnny Depp comes in and and is like the the asshole of this military force that then kind of slowly takes. It. It, it's a really interesting film. It's, it, again, it's obviously very specific of what it's trying to comment on, um, and that's what I found a little bit weird about it. It just was a little bit bleak and dry in its presentation. But you loved it, and I'm curious if you can explain your take on it a bit better than even I can. Yeah, I was I was surprised by the movie because, it, as you said, it came at the very end of the festival, and I'm not sure how you felt about the festival generally, but I felt it was um, there was a certain dip in quality compared to the year before. So I was really waiting for a really good film. I mean, we'd had Joker, and we'd had a few films that had a Marriage Story, a few films that had made us talk and had pleased us. But generally speaking, the level was just a bit, you know, three star, just a bit kind of not awful, but just nothing 
to get excited about. So in that context, I sat down, I think it was one of the last films I saw at the festival as well. And um, I, there was, I just loved this film. It was extremely uh, well acted. Mark Rylance is amazing in it. Johnny mm -hmm. Depp for once keeps his cosplay um, you know, uh, enthusiasms to the minimum and actually does a performance probably embarrassed by the presence of proper actors. He really, he really brings his A game this time. Uh, Robert Pattinson turns up as well in a later, a later moment and does what he seems to be doing quite frequently now, which is turning up with, in a cameo role and, and eating much of the scenery. Um, but in a way that I find, you know, I mean, you know, love him or leave him, but I, I find delightful. He's, he's reminding me a little bit of, um, oh, the name of that American actor, Michael Shannon. Uh, that he just, when he pops up, you, you just feel the, the audience sort of sit up in their seats, like, oh, okay, okay, something's going to happen here. Uh, the, the film is based on uh, a novel by the, I think he's, he won the Nobel Prize, J.M. Curtsy, the um, oh, okay, okay. South African uh, writer. Right. And he's, uh, this guy is famously like reclusive and famously very, very serious. I remember reading once, uh, somebody mentioning that, uh, they once heard him that, you know, oh, Curtsy isn't all that serious. I once heard him laugh in 1987. So, um, so he can't, <laughs> you know, his, reputation for dourness it, it kind of precedes him and yet he wrote the screenplay for the film so mm. this is a really close collaboration with someone who i wouldn't have expected to have necessarily done that and um and what i liked about the film is yes there was an element that this was about all realism all you know it was very difficult to actually geographically locate it could have been like Afghanistan, it could have been Africa, it could have been northern, uh, a northern province in, in India or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it really gradually showed up not only the more obvious, brutal elements of imperialism in the characters of Pattinson and, um, and Johnny Depp, but also it showed up the sort of white savior complex and the, the more gentle, enlightened uh, sort of muscular Christianity that Mark Rylance's character was very much um, uh, uh, a symbol of. And so mm. he was the character who, although he had, you know, to use a phrase, he had gone native, he was nevertheless uh, uh, implicit, complicit with with what was happening. He he lays the groundwork. He's a, he's a lower level functionary for a for an unfair system mm. and um it, it had real power I was, I was really it really made me think it really didn't have simple answers it didn't let you mm. off the hook it didn't give you straightforward goodies and straightforward baddies although maybe maybe more straightforward baddies and um and just the level of detail there was something about the cinematography which was beautiful they managed to do the you know looking at your footsteps and looking at the horizon thing where the in you know the the shots of very delicate sort of writing in a diary or having little boxes and little artifacts that the main character collects uh, just beautiful textual text uh, textile detail you know you can really feel you tactile is the word i'm looking for mm. and then at the same time you could go out into the desert and have this brilliant sort of uh, T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia sweep of, of grandiose 
landscapes and and it, that gave it a you know there was that intimate humanity but there was always also this epic there were these intimate emotions but there was also this political uh this political um analogy that was going on yeah so yeah i mean i i and i was and, and uh, i don't think the 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 vibe wasn't particularly positive after the, the um, Jonathan Romney, who writes for Screen, and um, we had entirely opposite takes on it. I was like, oh. "Oh, this was great," and he was, "Oh, this was the worst film of the festival so far." Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, and it was the end of the festival, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was totally nonplussed by it, and um, mm. uh, you know, that's what's that's what's great about festivals. Every the worst film is somebody's favorite film, and your favorite mm. film is somebody else's worst film. So. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I, I, I mean, I would actually say one of the reasons I love your love for it is because this film deserves that kind of champion, championing from someone. Because, because, and actually, I, I'm, I'm more in the middle of it, and I don't really hate or love it in either way. But I appreciate a lot of what it's trying to do, and I appreciate the beauty, as you said, of the cinematography. Um, and what the only thing that held me back was just like a few of these scenes where I felt like there's just not enough dialogue like they're they're about to have a conversation about something and it just stops and it's like i get it but it's kind of like i wanted more and i felt like that's a lot of the film just held back in a little bit of a way which uh normally can be good when you when you restrain yourself but i felt like took away from this in a little bit but but aside from that i think this film doesn't deserve to just be like forgotten and buried i think there is something to it not only in the beauty of it but also in as you said the storytelling and the ideas it presents and the things it discusses and i hope it stirs people up when they get a chance to see it and not just uh, forget about it and write it off and, and, and hope no one sees it. Because I think when this happens, when a film gets mixed responses, your um, take and your positivity for it can, can be the support it really needs for people to find something in it that otherwise critics are like, oh, there's nothing there. Well, maybe there is something there that is mm -hmm. worth digging into. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think the ellipses that you talk about are kind of structurally in the, the way that story is told. So there are these chapters which, which follow seasons, and um, those chapters also involve time leaps as well. And so I think the film, even a, even a, a smaller level between scenes, tends to sort of jump over where, for me, a lesser film would have filled in those gaps. This film actually ju just lets the gap breathe and you get a feeling that you're as a as a control of the narrative because you just might jump over for three months and and not know what happened in the and have to piece it together again you know um, yeah. i kind of like surrendering that that to the film yeah definitely and if anything i i'm really curious to see if uh chiro guerra the the director makes more english language films i know this was his sort of big English language debut after making two, um, uh, I guess, Spanish language films before this. And that if he continues to go down that route, I think he'll only get better. If he goes back and sort of goes back and forth, I think it'll play against him in the long run. Not that he isn't capable of that, but I think it's like, you know, what direction are you going in from here? Because he's obviously a very competent, at least visually incredible filmmaker who has something to say through his films that isn't just like some drama. There's some deep meaning in every one of the films he's made uh and i and i'm I, i'm looking forward to seeing what he does from now on especially following waiting for the barbarians yeah i mean it, i i went um i've seen the film back and saw embrace the serpent which was his uh film from 
couple of years ago, 2016, and Embrace of the Serpent, sorry. Uh, and that actually is a, a film with several different languages in it. I think it's got a bit of German in it, and it's got a, uh, indigenous languages, and it's a, a magnet. It looks wonderful. That's a uh, that's a film I would definitely put people towards. And you know, some of the themes are, are exactly the same. Are uh, uh, you know, people um, invading uh, a space and and bringing to end a way of life. So it's um, so the, the the two films actually you know dovetail quite neatly. It feels like a continuation. Oh, and I mean the other thing I would emphasize well is I just loved Mark Rylance's performance because I oh, think yeah. he's an actor who is always fascinating, but he, he frequently doesn't get the um, he doesn't necessarily get a role that. Well, I mean, for instance, the BFG, I didn't think was a, a good enough film for him to be in. He's, he's just super. And he's the more the more we see of him, the better the better life will be generally. Uh, well, I mean, I want to get back to the main topic at hand today, which is at Astra um, and, and uh, have a conversation about this film. Actually, one of the reasons I really want to talk about at Astra is the way much like a lot of sci-fi, but even specifically 2001, which this film is a clear reference to, um, is to figure out what the hell it all means, so to say. And hopefully people listening to this particular podcast have uh, seen Ad Astra and, and you know, know where it leads, which is to Neptune and back, basically. Um, but I want to get into that conversation because I kind of want to figure out, like James Gray especially of all filmmakers, is the kind of person who, who, who really means to say something through his films. They're not just a simple story and you get to experience the slice of life. It's, it's real deep meaning and real things being said through his filmmaking. And through Ad Astra, which is his first full-on sci-fi feature, um, I think he has a lot to say. Uh, and, I mean, to just get right into it, the most obvious thing with Ad Astra is almost this idea of... Um, we're going to go on this journey to try and find life out in the cosmos. And uh, he goes all the way out there to find out that there isn't life in the cosmos. And if we're going to connect it to today's times with climate change and, and all the social upheaval around the world, that his point is almost like, hey, instead of looking outward, we need to actually just focus on ourselves and figure out how to solve our own problems. Uh, which is not only, I feel like, Brad Pitt's journey, his character's journey throughout the film, but also a lot of what Ad Astra as a film is trying to say. Um, so I, I, I went to see Adastra again a second time recently since it had been so long just to get a, a fresh mind. Um, and I really enjoy the experience as, as a very quiet, meditative film that, that takes us on this journey. It's one of the most deliberately paced versions of a let's travel from planet to planet kind of, I mean, it's not even sci-fi, it's, it's real science kind of film where it's like, it takes time to get to the moon and then you get to the moon and you have to go to the other rocket and then you have to get in this rocket and go to Mars and that takes a couple of weeks to get to Mars even at the fastest speeds we can get to. And then you have to get in another rocket and go from that rocket all the way out to Neptune. Like This is a long, grueling journey and the, the whole film is uh, edited in that way to present that journey as the core of everything. And of course we follow and learn a lot through Pitt's journey into each place um the moon i think being the most fascinating for what it shows uh but of course every piece of the puzzle mars has a lot to do with um almost just government regulation and and the collapse of uh the the mission itself 
Um, and then, of course, the, the end goal, which is to meet his father out there, find out what's going on out there and, and figure it out. Um, and I, I don't as, as a big sci fi nerd, I don't love Ad Astra, um, but I do really like it. And uh, I guess that's my opening as we get into this discussion um, and have a conversation about it. Uh, so I don't know who who has something to say <laughs> next immediately, because. Um, there's a couple other things I want to talk about, uh, specifically the religious aspect down the line, but um, I just want to hear everyone's general take on it to, to begin with. I'm, I'm, I'd like to hear. I, I hear there's, there's dissension in the ranks, and I want to hear it. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're nailing your colors to the pro, pro Ad Astra mast. I, I, I have, uh, I'm about an 80-20 pro-con Ad Astra guy. <laughs> I, 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 it's not a perfect movie, right? I, okay. And I have, I have some things to say on that, but I, I want to hear, I want to hear what you think. What do you think, John? Okay, um, okay. Well, I'm going to be the baddie then. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't hate it, but and I definitely, definitely, to give it some context, uh, I went in wanting to love it very, very much. It seemed to be. Well, I mean, James Gray, I really loved uh, Lost City of Zed, which was um, his last film. I think one of the best films of 2016. Uh, I didn't particularly like The Immigrant, but it, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't awful. It was a good film. Yeah. Um, I love Brad Pitt. I think he's a great actor. I think he, we rarely see him. And when we do, he really seems to pick his projects with care. Uh, I love the cinematographer. I love the music, Max Richter. Mm -hmm. uh so i was i was really going and i love science fiction i'm a huge science fiction fan and i'm a huge sort of serious you know kubrick to tarkovsky to nolan sort of taking it seriously so all of those things were sort of i was i was batting for the film if you like and um almost immediately upon it starting i started to think this feels really derivative in a way which isn't particularly creative. And mm. this is a little bit, a little bit of a problem with criticism. You know, we, we all go in and see movies and, you know, as critics, we, we tend to start comparing them to the everything else we've ever seen. But, you know, the very first scene where he falls off the sort of uh, space ladder felt like gravity just felt like they they wanted a gravity scene and there was a little bit of icarus in there and there was a little bit of but then almost every step of the way i was thinking okay that's that's from somewhere else that's from from solaris or that's from 2001 or that's from uh uh something i've already seen event horizon or sunshine sunshine is it sunshine yeah, yeah it Oil is sunshine film? i love sunshine um but the the overwhelming comparison that came to me uh, very very early on and kind of stymied a lot of my um, my approach to the film was it just reminded me of Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. uh, it felt like the film had this basically Brad Pitt was the Martin Sheen character was a Willard character who was going up the river, aka to Neptune, to to meet Kurt, aka his dad. And um, not only was this sort of a narrative sort of template that the film was borrowing from and using, which is fair enough, you know, you can, you know, films, stories have been made a thousand times, so that's not, not too much of a problem. Apocalypse Now is Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, of course, so it's not original. 
but I even like the the things like the voiceover just felt so insistently a reference to Apocalypse Now and 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 really suffered from the comparison um, because it because Michael Hur's you know scripted narration in Apocalypse Now is is brilliant is is a real addition to the film. You re- there's, there are lines from there that I can quote off the top of my head, but I would I would be able to pastiche Ad Astra, but I wouldn't be able to remember any of the lines. I mean, I know they, they sounded, they all sounded something like father, father, where, where art thou? And where, <laughs> if only we could touch and we are all <laughs> on a stage. And, and it was just, it was like sub Malik, you know, uh, a, a sub Malik rewrite. Um, so I, so that kind of, uh, that really alienated me from the movie in a way that was that I just, I just could see all the joins. I could see the rivets. I could see the way it was held together. Uh, and it stopped me from having a proper like emotional relationship with the movie. And when I listen to you guys and when I read other people's, um, uh, reviews and comments, it isn't just that people like the movie more than I do. They really, really like it more than I do. And they really, connect to it in an emotional way which uh which i kind i'm kind of envious of i, w- I wish i'd got that mo- i was ready for that movie but i just didn't see it it's funny you know a lot of the things you said are are for me almost word for word descriptions of the film in reasons i liked it <laughs> so that's something that's i think fascinating about this movie it's pretty much wearing right. its identity <laughs> on its sleeve it's not trying to pawn itself off every uh, every step of the way as its own unique movie. It's almost as if it says, well, if you like this movie, you'll love this scene. And I, I, I saw those scenes like you did, and I, I will say that it was occasionally I was taken out of the movie for a moment where I was essentially just picturing the studio and James Gray and probably Brad Pitt in the room too talking about why you should invest in this movie because this scene is like this movie. And I mean, there's probably a reason why I think there were like nine or 10 different production studios that invested in this movie. If you go to the, um, if you, if you look at the, the studios behind it, it's all over the map. And I do think that that's actually a sort of behind the scenes tick that something about this movie was a little confusing for the people behind the the, the paychecks, and 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 there's usually something to be said for that with the audience. That they're they're not too far off usually. All that being said, I, I did really like this movie, but I came in kind of already there. You know, I kind of I, I was told, or at least saw on Twitter, that it was very much Apocalypse Now meets Terrence Malick, and those are two of my favorite things. And so I was like, well, if that's true, I'm guaranteed to like this movie. But, you know, when I said I was sort of 80-20 about this movie, the 20% that didn't like it is the part that's... It, it wasn't as good as Apocalypse Now. It wasn't as good as, uh, let's just go with two of my favorites, like Tree of Life or Thin Red Line or something. Um, it, 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 was, it never really held up to a place where I think over the next 10 years, I'm going to just want to watch it over and over and over again. But then there's another part of me 
that's so happy that we got this mood movie because we don't get enough mood movies where it's so <laughs> deliberately designed <laughs> to put you in a mindset. And uh, what, you know, what it, mood it, are you in though, Mike? What is I'm I'm chill. I'm relaxed. I mean, it's Max Richter. Let's start there. It, you know, I <laughs> I literally use his music. He created an album. I don't know if you guys have heard of it called Sleep, oh, where right, he wrote right. eight hours of music oh, yeah, that is yeah. like almost the exact same. Long? Yeah, I think it's twelve. It might be eight. Like you're just supposed pretty, to listen to it sleeping, right? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much actually. You can see a lot of the legwork for Ad Astra coming from that score. Max Richter is um, one of my favorite composers, but at the same time, he doesn't stretch his legs too much. He's He has a style that he's very good at. Um, and as I understand, the score had some... Uh, Lauren Balf, who's like one of Hans Zimmer's guys, came in and did a couple extra notes here and there to help with the score. And you can kind of hear when that happens, like the amazing space pirate chase, which we'll get into, I'm sure. So anyway, the, the movie has all these little pieces that I love, like mm -hmm. Hoyt Van Hotema is, you know, one of the best and he did Interstellar. So you sort of can even, there's ties to the Interstellar in the movie just by the people making it. And I, all of these pieces, I was torn both directions. And yet I still feel like the tug of war leaned me towards really liking it. And the more I think about the movie, the more I like it. And we're recording this podcast about two weeks after I've seen it. And, I, and in hindsight, I think I really do want to see this movie again. And for me, that's one of the big tell, telling tales of uh, whether I liked a movie or not. I can't always tell the minute I leave the theater if it's one of my favorites or if it's a top 10 of the year. Sometimes I can. But this one, I was like, I think I really liked that movie, but I need to sit on it. And every once in a while, I would revisit it. And I'm like, man, I really just want to go back. And I, I do think part of that was also that I had a really bad theatrical experience with it, where the people next to me were chomping popcorn like apes. And the uh. people to my left were on their phones. And it was a packed house on a Friday night, which I told myself I would never do, is go to a Friday night movie again. And I'm like, all these people thought they were going to see interstellar 2 and you know it, it's not that movie it's not a friday night packed house movie in my opinion it's a movie you mm -hmm. want to watch with headphones on in a little like bubble this is this is true it is a very like it's weird to say quiet because there are sound effects and score pieces in it but it's like a very quiet movie <laughs> it is a very like especially watching in the cinema with people everyone's just like completely quiet and and um different than joker which i talked about on the last podcast but just completely you're supposed to be sucked into it um yeah, but you could i could feel people being bored like i could hear people's boredom <laughs> and it and that pissed me off because like i wasn't bored i was fascinated right. by this movie and i and i don't think i would ever want to see this movie with other people again but i want to watch it again yeah i i would i would I would definitely say I wasn't I wasn't bored. Um, I, I thought that's what your that review was... said, John. <laughs> Did it? I don't, I, I, no, I I, 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 I could have sworn so. after we got out of it in Venice, you were like, I was bored. But sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I, yeah, maybe I was. Maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm rewriting history. But um, that put it that way, being being a bit bored sort of goes with the territory. You know, two thousand and one is intentionally boring you know you're supposed to be a little bit bored you're supposed to be a little bit to get the idea of how long it's taking to get to jupiter and how boring the lives of the astronauts are and how 
how it's not glamorous it's not exciting and the only thing that makes it exciting is there's a glitch in the computer so you know that that isn't and solaris by tarkovsky not the the soderberg one but the tarkovsky one is is achingly boring it's really <laughs> punitively dull and it's a great movie so i mean i've i've not necessarily i don't see boredom as necessarily being a as you know, I mean, it, it's just about recalibrating. Sometimes you just have mm. to get into the pace of the film and and go with it. It, it. That wasn't so much what was problematic for me. Um, but yeah, maybe we can get into it as as we go along. Um, yeah, I, I one of the things I was going to say while you guys were were talking about this is, is the way the film is interesting on a production level. Like, they shot it, I think, in 2017, and then it was supposed to be released originally last year. It was on the Mm. schedule. It was ready to go. Then there was a big reshoot thing after, I guess, the test screenings were bad. They reshot a lot of it, which could... It's one of those things where, like, you could see it, and you it's almost like that could make sense. Like, if it was even more colder than it already is, of course, test screening audiences are going to hate it. Um, And then, of course... Do Do you know what they added to it? Do you know which scenes? No, I don't. Because um, I've got I was... a feeling the moon, the moon buggy scene felt yeah, like yeah. Uh, felt like something that had been added to spice it up. Because it it didn't feel really organic to the film. It was just that would make sense for two reasons. Number one is that uh, according to Wikipedia, it says Pitt was not available to do the reshoot, so they had to do everything without him. And then number two is that you can easily see a studio saying, "Hey, we like the film, but there's not enough action," and that that moon sequence is one of the oh, now we've got an action sequence in it kind of things. Yeah, um, I mean, it's in the trailer. I, I was yeah. thinking um, that flashback, but I can't place it exactly. There is a moment where we see the young version of him, right? Not that I know of. Isn't there a flashback or maybe he's looking at footage? The, no, there's flash. Oh, uh, he's looking at footage of what, Tommy Lee Jones or? No, I forget it. There were... There are a series of flashbacks of Liv Tyler, um, yeah. sort of stroking his hair, then walking away. Yeah, I thought the only yeah, flashbacks were oh. with him and in the and Liv Tyler, like I, remembering I his romance the, of past. The Liv Tyler stuff, all due respect to our Armageddon Queen, that was not necessary. No, he was I, not. I, 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 all of it was completely unnecessary. I get it. Like, oh, you know, you want to add some context for what he's giving up. But I didn't buy that he was giving up shit. Like I, I, they were in a, they were in a house of cards, you know, relationship where it was clear that he was going to be this guy, and she had just decided she'd had enough at the point that the movie started. I, it was not like he was get, he didn't give anything up, in my opinion. Like, <laughs> there was no get, conflict. But that's the whole. I, I don't want to disagree with you, but the, but to me, that's the whole point of the film. Is that I, I'm not that kind of person he is but i am the kind of person who's like hey i've got a mission to go on and i'm just gonna go do it like i live my life in a very lonely way and that the point of his character giving quote unquote giving up Liv tyler is that feeling of he gave up something for whatever reason or 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 they they didn't work because he he's a driven guy whose only care in his life is his work and his job and that he needs to realize through the course of the film and this journey he goes on that actually the most important thing to him is this love that was in front of him that he lost. And that, to me, that's, that's meaningful. With introspective movies, right? Imagine this movie without voiceover, which I would like to do. Um, 
it it you have zero context when you when you keep it within the emotional sort of world that your main character who is emotionally reserved lives in and so you know i'm not asking for um a super heartbreaking moment between he and Liv Tyler's character i just feel like the movie expected me to care some movies don't expect you to care. They actually want you to side with the guy or the woman who's leaving the relationship for this other experience. Social Network would be a good example where it's like, I don't really care about this Rooney Mara situation. I'm glad he's doing it because we get to go on an adventure now. And, <laughs> but I get the I get how she feels. I didn't get how Liv Tyler felt because he went with the sort of like, the guy at in the war who's writing a letter back to his wife and the wife is just like playing with the shades. Yeah. I think she's, um, she feels like an afterthought of like, uh, we don't have any women in this movie except for the, uh, <laughs> you know, except for a couple of the astronauts that turn up. We don't have any relationship with him. And uh, for for me, she was a really um, oh sorry, and Ruth Negger turns up in Mars as well. But oh, right, right. she she felt like um, a, that really sort of sexist idea of the role of the woman whose basic job it is to say, you know, come ho- you're not you don't spend enough time at home, mm-hmm. and it's it's just all uh, you know the naggy sort of whiny feel uh, to that character is just so retrograde and so. You know, it's we've done that so many times. Can we do something else? You know, it's um, and plus the, the film. The film wasn't interested in her. It was interested in the father. It yeah. was the it was the Tommy Lee Jones and the lost little boy that was the interesting thing. You yeah, know, there's I, a clear there's a point right there. The point is very clear in this movie about sacrifice and and what you sacrifice um, those people in your life for. And I think that message was 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 reading loud and clear and I really I like that as a message in a film you know and done in this way which felt fairly unique to that kind of con- uh, of story and we're picking up the pieces about what um we know what Tommy Lee Jones sacrificed because we see this emotionally reserved guy who's who is that way because his father did what he did and now he's sort of following suit you know it's not because he chose to be this way he's just sort of like this is now unfortunately the way he is because his father did it before him and so i think that's a really interesting and deep and and endless thing to explore and so in order to give him his own sacrifice rather than just stay within the confines of this story they they add Liv Tyler's character and so yeah and I just don't think they they could have had one or two more scenes in the film to add depth to their relationship to make it worth its existence in the first place like it didn't hurt the movie for me for me I was so invested in other parts of it that whenever the Liv Tyler scenes would come up I'd be like okay that's fine and it was shot kind of beautifully too you know so at least it was visually interesting to look at but it just it, it was almost like a break and, and i kind of feel like that's where it where it came from you know i think in the edit sometimes you're like I, we just need a break from this one story this one linear story that we're going on and so that's what that's where that comes from i mean it, it, it's it felt a little transparent but i was okay with it it's fine i just if i rewatch the movie with a with a fast forward button i might 
might just have to skip that part. <laughs> yeah. I, I do wonder how much of his the tinkering was with the editing. I heard he left a lot of scenes out, but I wonder if that, like, at what point in the two-year post-production process did he realize that or decide that he just wanted to keep it focused purely on Pitt? Like, were there other whole other chunks of it that he cut out and left out through the process that were with her or more? Because it, it is, I think it's a strength and a weakness, which is a weird thing to say. But it's I think it's both of those that the editing of the film is just presenting Pitt's story purely, and that's all you follow. Because I think it is good and interesting and, and strong to do that, but also, as you've clearly both stated, takes away from a lot of what the true uh, depth of the film could be by giving us only that. Yeah. But that's also good world building, in my opinion, too. I, I, I think that when you step out of your main characters to show people all the cool stuff you thought of, it, it can take away from um, how fun it is to see those kinds of imaginary worlds or, or futures. And so the way that 2001 Space Odyssey was so effective in doing that was that it, it never brought it up. It was just like, oh, yeah, of course, Virgin Atlantic is going to be in charge of this space station on the moon. Mm -hmm. And as the same way that they did that, again, you know, you know, for some people, it might be a drawback. I, I like that it was almost a direct callback to 2001 to have these sort of brands running these stations on the moon. But what I think made it better was by the end of the film, you realize that there's this sort of like progressive or, or I guess degressive, you know, um, branding of space where they haven't really managed to figure out a way to get anything beyond government past the moon. So like the moon is now corporate but Mars was very sort of Area 51, and then you've got Neptune, which was this sort of uncharted territory. I thought that was a really cool thing on paper to see how, how the isolation grew. Mm, mm. As he progresses. I thought, that, I, I agree, I thought the moon part was one of the best bits, and I thought yeah. that world building was ec excellent. I really, I was, I was up for that. It had, a, it had the beginnings of a joke. It had the, you know, the $125 pillow, um, you know, that you have to buy when you're, uh, yeah. when you're fl flying there, and all of that stuff I, I really liked. Um, I mean, the, of that early sort of progression, I thought one of the first da danger signs was the sort of exposition briefing and um, Donald Sutherland, who's an actor I, I love seeing, uh, and also made this a kind of um, sequel to Space Cowboys as well with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Donald Sutherland. <laughs> yes, I, up. I was thinking of that too. Um, but he kind of, the, he sort of turns up, does a little bit of, exposition does a little bit of sort of tagging along and then and then sort of stops because he's really obviously too old from the very beginning to do the mission he's supposed to be doing so it just struck me as that that was a bit where i thought ah they only had him for a couple of weeks then i guess um it, it didn't feel like that was an organic character who was there and then and then not there for a particular reason you know yeah, a lot of that, I, I do agree, a lot of that felt that way with, like, just, like, confusing, mo even Ruth Negan's character, I'm like, what, who exactly was she? Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I get it, and then I'm, but I'm also like, but you had, like, three scenes with her. 
Yeah, and and they're all they're all exposition dumps. They're all yeah, I'm yes. going to tell you the next part of your mission. I you know oh you've arrived. I'm a, it's like a Dungeons and Dragons. You know I'm going to yes. open the envelope now and tell you what to do next. And I mean Ruth Negger even has a line where she says my family was also was on uh, Neptune and they were killed. So I guess we both have a motivation here. And you just think. Are you just reading out like the bits that you're not supposed to read out of the script? That you know, yeah. you're just re- you well, just cut and pasted the treatment, and you're just re- reading it out loud. It 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 felt so nakedly, just unpolished and un you know just make can't you make can't you think of a way of organically telling the story without just having people occasionally stand up and tell the story? I, yeah. I did, from from a critical perspective, I think you're absolutely right. Um, as a sort of just a, as a moviegoer, if those are separate things, which I think they might be, um, yeah, the, <laughs> the 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 way it was designed very much like a video game cutscene, all of it, mm. <laughs> like like I can picture Ad Astra as a video game and get really excited about that. You know, all the things that happened in the movie were the cutscenes, and mm. ex- except you would have done the you would have actually done the space pirate chase. Um, <laughs> it's it, it 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 it's a boring game to use that word again but it's kind of like that there's that game no man's sky where you literally just like travel no man's through sky. space <laughs> yes it's amazing but it's boring and yeah um there it there is an element of this that it was definitely designed the way video game stories are designed right i mean there's a progression this sort of like there's the boss <laughs> at the end uh there's yeah. the there's the characters you interact with along the way who essentially just tell you that you're about to choose between pressing A or pressing X. And, you know, I think that's OK, depending on what they say. And so, you mm-hmm. know, I think I liked Sutherland's character because he did feel uh, like he belonged. He did feel like I, I knew from the start he's no chance that he makes it all the way to the end here. Um, I didn't think he was going to die, but um, it, that was silly, by the way. Hey, having him yeah. be, have like a dying word was kind of silly. Like we didn't, he didn't, he didn't <laughs> need that, did he? <laughs> yeah. Which, now let me underline what I'm about to say by, you know, gasping my last breath at you as I do. So. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, but there were these little, you know, moments and characters who are telling Brad Pitt essentially things that he needs to know. But only that much. And I always like that about military sort of space things where they anything, even earthly, you know, where the the character isn't allowed to know everything, which saves a little mystery for you as the audience member. It's a really easy construct that I think more films should try to do um, because Brad Pitt's whole motivation is twofold. It, it is it, in one part, he has decided it's finally time to get the to to. Um, to have resolution with his father on an emotional level because something's missing. He knew he never got that. And so if he gets that, maybe he'll be complete. But more importantly, everyone's telling him all this bullshit about his dad, who he thought was a good guy. And now they're telling him he's not, I got to get the answer to this question. And only I can get the answer to this question. And I think that served as motivation for a lot of things that happened in the film. Now, countering that, I don't think it served as good motivation for him to risk his life to help with the um, the the mission, the side mission, right? When the the crazy um, lab monkeys attacked, mm. <laughs> um, 
crazy idea, by the way. But I loved it. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't understand, though, why he had to be out of the ship for that. I think he just was like the the bold, uh, I can handle anything, and clearly you guys can't handle it, so I'm just going to go handle it yes, this year. Yes, but if you, you're on a literal, like, globe... ...saving mission... You, you you don't leave the ship to go investigate uh, an event horizon situation. Like you just yeah. you just don't do that. That doesn't make any sense. It's very, very irresponsible of him for a character whose like core value is that he's super responsible and super thoughtful about what he does. But you could uh, argue yes, then, it, Mike, that that his point at that moment was if I don't go with this guy to see what's up with this ship, maybe everyone dies and it doesn't continue. Like the only way I'll keep this my ship, the Cepheus, from from completely being destroyed. Is that not destroyed. basically what happened? I mean, that's basically what well, happened. But, but I mean, the it, ship. to me, it was, a, it, was a, it was a fascinating moment where like he can't really argue with these guys. He's not the captain of the ship. He can't reveal his position in which he would take command. And they have that little moment. I'm like, okay, that was cool. And then, and then it's, a, it, it, it's like... He's a it, protocol it's a, guy. But it, it, put it this way. If you were in a position where you knew you were smarter and more capable than everyone else in your situation, and that the only way you could like save the situation from everyone dying was with you participating but without revealing yourself you would do that because that's why, it's the I, yeah, that's why i do that's why i record the podcasts and you don't because <laughs> otherwise we would not have any podcasts. No, I, <laughs> I know but to me that's i think that was it's I, it is a when i first watched it, i was like oh my god fight with these guys pit but then i was like dang it do your thing yeah and i know what you're saying like it is a i don't know it is a cool sequence <laughs> But it is also another one where it's like this exciting, intense moment. Actually, the first time I thought, and I think this was the point, I thought like, oh my god, we're finally meeting some aliens. Yeah. Um, of course, later do you find out that there are no aliens. But like, that that was the moment where, and I think Gray, in a snarky, smirky way, was like, haha, look what I've done to you guys for a half a second here in the middle of the movie. Because when you're first watching it, you're like, oh my god, what did they finally you know encounter some it's space creatures it's very clearly a wake the fuck up people moment yeah yeah <laughs> it's like yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's it's yeah isn't it martin sheen sort of getting off the boat to get some mangoes with chef as well and finding a yes. tiger it uh, so you know. is it so uh, is and uh and they and they're sort of saying uh, I mean, I, I got the feeling that he was doing it not so much to save their lives or anything, but to just ac accelerate the process. OK, like, you know, uh, I, I mean, uh, there was a little bit as well of Brad Pitt's Roy McBride character that was a bit too. Uh, it felt like it was almost like Tom Cruise had written it. You know, that <laughs> that way it has those vanity moments where yeah, you're going to be the smartest guy in the in the room and you're going to be the most capable guy in the room. And when you murder all these people, it's not because you've murdered them. It's because, you know, they wouldn't listen to you. And, you know, your hands are registered as lethal weapons. <laughs> you know, if, you kill, if you kill them, it'll be manslaughter. You know? It's true, though. You could see it, it's, it seems very obvious based on um, Plan B being involved in this film that it, it doesn't get made without Brad Pitt. Uh, that yeah. he was instrumental in this getting produced and made. But... <clears throat> It is a role you could see almost anybody doing, and and, and I don't I, I don't know if that's a ding on the movie or or what. Um, I, I prefer when you know a character, especially one that is 
the entire center of the movie is portrayed in a way that I just can't picture anybody else doing it. But you could actually picture Mark Wahlberg or like <laughs> oh, God. Or Tom Cruise. God. <laughs> like that's the thing. Literally, if you sit five minutes, you think about Mark Wahlberg in that movie, it's probably the same movie. It's just worse. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, um, you know, I, I do think the apocalypse now stuff we keep bringing up is, is, is brought up for a reason. It's very clear. And that's cool. I mean, you know, I think if you were to, if he were to tell you that I'm doing a hearts of darkness, hearts of darkness is the documentary, sorry, heart of darkness, uh, in space, if he had been very clear from the get go about that, I think maybe the reception to that comparison could have been different overall, but the fact that it is what it is, and it's pretty clear uh, that the beats are similar. But, you know, I do think he was aware of it by having the ultimate uh, Kurt's character not be evil. I mean, but it, I was... Whoa, 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 wait a second. Did he, <laughs> didn't, he, didn't he kill everybody? Didn't, isn't he a murderer? But there's he was Colonel Kurtz, right, to the extent that he killed everybody else because they were not seeing the big picture, right? I mean, that was like a copy-paste of Colonel Kurtz. Right. Um, and so he also e- sort of scrolled something on a on the magazine he had. He scrolled something on Magic Marker, which was the equivalent of sort of bomb them, kill them all, exterminate them. <laughs> yeah. You know. So I guess he is evil. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I was getting at was was that when you meet Colonel Kurtz, he's so clearly mad that he is beyond saving he he cannot be saved and yet when you get to tommy lee jones's character i do feel like i thought that i thought that when he was embracing his son being there that he was gonna turn that he was gonna go sunshine third act on him but he like he listened and he you know he 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 wanted to help brad pitt accomplish his mission he needed somebody to show up and reason with him and only his son could do that which I thought was anticlimactic, but also at least kind of switched gears a little bit. Otherwise, it would have been, it may as well have just had him with a shaved head in shadows. Yeah. There's... Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say, the, the thing about the Apocalypse Now stuff is they're not, I, I'm not saying that, um, I think it's very intentional. I don't think this is yeah, some of sort of... They're not trying to get it over on you or anything else. And I think I read in the extended press notes that we got at the festival, I read James Gray basically saying, we wanted to do Apocalypse Now in space. So it's not... Mm. The, ah, good. Uh, I, I, I'm not... Uh, they're not trying to get one over on, on us or, or anything like that. Um, and I've, again, I have no problem with that. You know, um, Walder Hill made Last Man Standing, which was basically... Fistful of Dollars, which was basically Yojimbo, which was basically Red Harvest. So, you know, it, it's done again and again. That's not a, that's no big deal. Um, it's my problem is when you have like the you set up the emotional core of the journey being here's a son who hasn't got a proper relationship with his father. And he's going to meet his father and he's going to sort of demand some sort of completion, some sort of explanation. And then he gets there and his father has killed everybody on board and we almost the film almost just carries on as if it's still about fatherhood and sonhood you know and and those other people are just sort of furniture in the in the room they're not you know that's not really addressed i mean 
surely the emotional, you know, uh, um, response to that would be, you know, I want you to love me, dad, but you're a murderer. You murdered all these people. What the hell's going on here? You know, you've obviously <laughs> lost it. Um, so that ceases to become that important at that point, doesn't it? You know? Oh, boy. I have a feeling you're not going to like the last Star Wars movie then. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, it's true, though. I, I, I have a bit of a funny little conflict of interest with characters who have done horrible, terrible things and get retribution because it serves our character. It serves right. the interest of our story, not the realism of what has happened. I mean, Brad Pitt is throughout the entire film, a guy who follows protocols, a guy who does not break protocols despite wanting to. He has a singular mission, but he will follow the rules because that's what he does. But by the time he gets to Neptune, that facade breaks down bit by bit. And I think by the time he gets there, he no longer cares about justice or, or for anybody else. He just wants the answers to his own questions. And I, I, I would be curious. I would have liked the film to have tackled that maybe more head on because I'm projecting that I, it was not clear that that's what was happening for him. I think I'm creating that as my own explanation. But, you know, no, when you're... you have a go ahead. Oh, yeah, I say you're onto it. I, I was going to mention only that, like, on the way to Neptune, he kills three people, basically. So he's also done something that his father has done. And, and it doesn't affect him because it was, like, out of necessity for the survival of the mission, which is the bigger picture of the survival of all of humanity in the solar system. But continue, Mike. No, I mean, my, my continuation is, is, is short, really. I, I was kind of leaning into the voiceover thing, which I think we have to talk about. You know, it's the elephant yeah. in the room with this movie. It works so well in Terrence Malick movies because it's it, it's it's inner thoughts. It, it, voiceover does not work in movies as effectively as I think the filmmakers want them to when you are clearly um, explaining things. And in uh, the it, it went back and forth. Like it was just a really weird voiceover use of voiceover. It felt like it felt like Blade Runner, two cuts of Blade Runner put into one, right? Where it's like hmm. it, I, some of them were very, very well thought through, and some of them weren't. You know, in particular, yeah. uh, the movie was almost. I would I would never say a movie is ruined by one thing that happens at the end. It's just not. I don't think that's fair. But I was taken aback by the final lines of the movie. I don't even remember what they were. I just remember they were actually eye roll inducing words where it was like, it, it was something like it's, you must live and love God. I don't know. I, is that <laughs> no, really that's what, what it, it is? Was? Yeah. It's like, it, uh, I wrote it down after I saw it again recently. It's basically like, uh, like, I mean, the very final words are like, you must live in love because he's, He's he. It is exactly like summing up the whole point of what he learned in this like three lines of uh, yeah. uh, uh, the dialogue at that point. Yeah, I really didn't like that. Some of the dialogue felt like postmortem. Like if you were to do it as a if he if the voiceover was an actual interview from later. Okay, that might be interesting. Yeah, um, the theme of the movie is, and then you just write that into the dialogue, uh, into the voiceover. Yeah, 
It just it didn't, I, I, it didn't work for me. It didn't do it. It didn't add anything to the movie other than sort of give it this, give it a little bit more mood. I mean, to go back to your Wahlberg point, I think this is this is quite rele- relevant. The Wahlberg, Wahlberg point should be a name of a book or a podcast, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so I think there's a really good point here that, that goes into the, the voiceover as well, which is essentially the character of, um, of Brad Pitt's Roy is supposed to be, from the very beginning, a characterless character. It's supposed to be a guy who falls from the from the upper atmosphere to the earth, and his pulse doesn't beat any str- stronger than when he's sitting in a chair. So he's meant to be this ice cold, personalityless personality, and he gains personality with the narrative. Is is the idea that that goes on? But really, as you as you said, him gaining personality just means him breaking rules and killing people. So. <laughs> You so that's what you have on a narrative level is him doing that and him meeting his dad and not seeming to have much more than a sociopath's um, you know emotional response to to the things that are immediately surrounding him, except for maybe a melancholy which which you know is is non too uh, you know expressive. The voiceover is meant to be this complex psychological interiority of yearning. And I just don't believe it. Now, to be fair, going back to Apocalypse Now, I don't believe that Martin Sheen is thinking in Michael Hur's voiceover either. There's nothing in Michael in Martin Sheen's uh, character that you you hear verbalized with other people anywhere near as incisive and eloquent as the voiceover you hear in the film. Mm. But True. it's so good, you just don't care. But you know you what just... works, what, what makes that work is it feels like he's reading a diary. It feels like he's reading something he's written, not that he's talking to us. Exactly. That's very, that's very true. That's a very it, good point. I, yeah. I totally... And, and it, it allows him to be more poetic. It allows him to be more uh, just sort of like grandiose too. Whereas there's no context for the Brad Pitt voiceover. There's none other than, well, we need to hear what he's thinking. Uh, yeah, and, I think it's supposed to be his inner monologue. I, I don't. Yeah. I agree. Oh, I don't it think it's, it's literary in any way whatsoever. It's totally, you know, the Maliki thing. But I mean, the problem with Malik as well is that nobody thinks like that. You know, mm. nobody thinks um, big word, abstract noun, verb, abstract <laughs> noun. You know, <laughs> well, it, it's that, just it, it's like Dali painting dreams that nobody has ever dreamed. You know, it's uh, and it, but it's, that brings us into a really good point, which is uh, one that Alex said he wanted to talk about earlier. Anyway, um, I just blanked. Fuck. What um, the whole the whole point of the movie, what, Mike? What the no. the meaning what of life, the, thing? the universe, and everything? <laughs> oh, religion. Thank you, religion. Oh, religion. Yeah, no, that you know, Terrence Malick movies have an underlying theme about religion. He's obsessed with it. Uh, he injects it into every topic of every movie he's made. Um, and, and, you know, in this movie, in Ad Astra, I would have loved to have seen a more explicit exploration of how religion pl- can play a role in this story because, you know, I've heard, I've read this, and maybe this is what you were getting at, Alex, which I really liked this sort of analysis of the film, was that... Uh, it, it's also a metaphor for finding for, for, for God that Tommy Lee Jones is essentially God. And um, 
you hear the good things and you hear the bad things and you he's abandoned you or he hasn't abandoned you and you have to meet him face to face to really get your answers and this and that um and he has the ability to obliterate life on earth and all this good stuff like there's some really interesting stuff there i wonder if the filmmakers intended or if uh if alex this is the direction that you had originally planned to go with this conversation no no that that seems i would say it is intended (laughs) um and and I only wanted to bring it up because it's something that really bothered me as someone who's anti-religious. I, I the whole time. I mean, I love sci-fi because they eschew religion most of the time, and in a way where they're like, religion has Wait, nothing to do with science. Can you clarify? Are you anti? You're anti-religious. It's different yes. from being atheist. Well, I sounds that's, different. That's a personal discussion. This is more okay. of like for the sake of a film. I don't want to see religion in my sci-fi films. And 90% of all sci-fi films don't have religion or some sort of, you know, version yeah. of it. But um, it just bothered me because, like, the, the and I had to look it up right now, but, like, the when they're launching from Mars, they, the guy gives that little prayer about, like, uh, you know, St. Christopher, please take us on our voyage. And St. Christopher is just the saint of uh, travel, actually, so it's nothing special. But what you said, Mike, is actually a really beautiful... as much as I hate to admit it, example of what it is. And I think that frustrated me because I'm like, I didn't want to see a sci-fi film that was a metaphor for meeting and encountering God and the meaning of it, but especially from James Gray, but I guess it doesn't surprise me from James Gray. Like, I'm not... He's not the kind of filmmaker like Nolan or Spielberg who makes these super cosmic sci-fi movies. He makes these kind of grounded spiritual movies and this is exactly that exact thing and it it just bothered me the religious aspect of it but i've been curious as to what it means and i think i don't know i think the explanation just gave right then is like well that sums it up in a really nice way (laughs) and there's a lot of really intelligent writers um uh, Alyssa wilkinson who who is a christian she wrote a whole article about it uh, and the meaning of it and the connection to it. I think those are the most insightful pieces I've read about it because it's clearly there for a reason. You couldn't, you can't say James Gray didn't put these lines in there and have these moments f- for us to just, you know, forget about them. There is a, I think that is his greater picture here. And unfortunately, I hate to admit it, I think that is his whole point with this film. It just frustrates me that as, as a sci-fi guy, I hate to have to admit that this sci-fi film was all designed to be a religious film because i i'm a fan of separation of science and religion and this combines them <laughs> you're like captain kirk in star trek 5 you're asking what does god need with a starship yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> but i mean the way you the way you just put it then mike with oh he has the ability to destroy earth it's like damn it that's right he is god in you a know way. one of my yeah, favorite but he's also things... every b-movie villain is also yeah, every course, james yeah. bond villain course, you know if, if that's the if that's the the parameter it's just a wreaking apocalypse on the on the world then i can you know moonraker is drax god <laughs> well yeah, I, it, you know the, it's, it's yes, motivation yes. motivation <laughs> i mean motivation is the key right you know the way the way that like a, a thanos or something you know wants to destroy life to improve life that's that's the god complex stuff going on and i think you know with tommy lee jones though with that character in this movie they were very deliberate for example i thought i thought the way that uh, they blocked the scene when he first um meets in the well he first sees 
his dad, um, Tommy Lee Jones is above him. Yeah. We're in a fucking spaceship. There is no above. Yet he is above him. He's there's a there's like a grate, you know, there's something in between them. It mm-hmm. felt like some kind of art artist's rendition of how you would imagine meeting God. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. you meet face to face at the pearly gates. He's above and all this bullshit. Um I I, I definitely I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that there's more to about this that James Gray opens up about rather than just doing that filmmaker trick of, well, you know, if that's what you saw, then that's great. I really want to hear his take. <laughs> but you could also, because Mike, I could also spin this off and say, to me, the greatest uh, lesson the film teaches is the idea of like, uh, as a science nerd, I want to go out and look for answers in the cosmos, not only life, but answers to how to solve our problems. But of course, there there aren't answers provided and therefore we just have to solve our own problems but you could also say that is the same journey religiously that we would look to god for answers and that we should go literally into the heavens to find god and ask him how to solve our problems on earth but when we meet this guy he just doesn't have the right answers or or as you said tells you both good and bad and all of this and is kind of just like eh whatever deal with it and then you got to leave him behind and come solve your own problems again which is almost like it works in both realms, which I don't know if that's a positive or negative well, for James Gray in terms of what he's pulled off with this. People, but. people who are, are deeply religious usually use that reasoning, right? Of Since they can't actually place God in, anywhere, right. they, they, anything that's bad that happens is usually described as God's will and is, well, God wants us to figure it out for ourselves. He gave us the ability to come up with our own answers and it's such a weird infinity, you know, figure yeah. where you just run in like a like a circle. But uh, in the film, it works, I think. And I think there's also something to be said about it being on Neptune of all planets. I don't think that was just because he liked Event Horizon. I think it was because uh, it's the edge of our of our known solar system. Technically, Pluto is no longer Pluto. And, uh, <laughs> Pluto's now just a dog in a cartoon. Sorry. Mm. Um, that's something to be said for it as well. Uh, but they just literally never get into it in the movie. So it's all for us to conjecture. Yeah. I, I, think... I would I would argue I if it, I, I didn't get that at all. I mean I I, <laughs> I listen I I listen to, to what you say, Mike, and it's uh and yeah, it's convincing. It's a nicely it's a nice convincing piece. I I would also say that you could easily argue that it's an atheistic film in that it's about an old testament man a father figure uh who goes out into the desert to look to see if we're alone in the universe or not with the ardent hope that we're not you know he wants to believe he wants to believe there's something out there bigger than us i.e god um or a god substitute a god-shaped thing and he finds there's nothing and it leads him to cruelty, and it leads him to genocide, and it leads him to uh, um, uh, uh, an, an ap- apocalyptic urge because he wants to wipe out everybody. Because without that meaning, we are we are nothing. And it's a critique of that. It's a critique of the God urge. If you uh, and when he turns up, he he reminded me more of like old Ben in Treasure Island of just this mad old hermit who who's been on his own too long. Um, I mean, I don't think I, and that's that isn't in any way a criticism of the movie. It's uh, it's kind of quite fun that you could have 
both those diametrically opposed interpretations. And I think they both stand up quite well to to analysis. Yeah, having having known filmmakers like Darren Aronofsky, who are actually very seriously uh, anti-religious, and seeing Mother being a beautiful critique of religion, having watched this, the moment they recite one of these prayers on the on the ships, I'm like, there's no way that Gray is anti-religious. I think he's, and actually the first time I ever heard it, I thought, oh, he's embracing religion. Like his his first point, I thought, was to remind us that no matter how far in the future we get and how much we think we can disprove and get rid of religion, it will always still be there. And even these people who are scientists going on a flight from Mars to Neptune are still going to recite a prayer to a god. And that has always shocked me when like someone who is an astronaut at NASA is religious. I'm like, how? How is that possible? But I thought that was his commentary at first. And I thought there was no way he could be anti-religious if he's including those kind of elements in at Astra. Um, but that's the I mean, thing about religion, right? I mean, uh, yeah. you're, we're all saying the same fucking thing, whether you're religious or not. It's just some it, people who are religious um, have this sort of, you could call it an excuse or an argument or reasoning or whatever, that there is something out there designing it all and that he's not just in the clouds on Earth. He is in the, he's everywhere. So if you're in outer space, he's still there. And it, it, it's a bit selfish, um, but we don't have to get into all that. It's, it's just it's interesting. It's just an interesting perspective um, on the frailty of the human psyche, I think. And that's why it's such a fascinating place to go when you think about something like this movie. Because, you know, you can't, they, these characters can't, fathom some of the things that they're encountering yet brad pitt is very focused on just i'm going to see my dad okay guys can you just stop with the fuckabouts and let me go see my dad <laughs> I, I i just take me there okay i don't care about these space monkeys i don't care about these moon pirates i'm just trying to see my dad <laughs> and um i thought that was interesting i i you know as somebody who whose father passed away when when i was younger um yeah I, I would, I would have liked to have seen this movie. I, I saw a lot of takes before it came out that this movie was really like emotionally charged. It, it drained a lot of people, and a couple people had commented on social media that you know that they had lost their father and that the movie really touched something for them. I was looking for that. I was disappointed not to find it. I didn't, you know, it, it might just be because that's everybody's personal journey and their own connection to things like that. But it didn't necessarily, I thought, oh, we've got Tommy Lee Jones in deep space or outer space, whatever you call it, and um, Brad Pitt has to find him. I, I really thought this was going to be something a little bit more in touch with um, that urge to have one last chance with your father. One last thing. What's the last yeah. word? Because they get into that a bit in the movie, right? Like Brad Pitt's thinking about the last thing they did frequently. And yet they didn't really have a cathartic reunion. Maybe that's the point. Maybe it's, oh, well, you know, he is who he is and he's not your father anymore. He's just some crazy dude in outer space. But they had an opportunity, I think, to have a really emotional moment and they never did it. Well, I thought the whole point of the, the father storyline was, and I haven't dealt with this. I just read this from other people. But the idea of like, 
oh, and he says this through his voiceover a couple times, like, oh, I, I wanted to be like my father. And then at another point, he's like, I don't want to be like my father. And there's that idea of, like, the never-ending life question of, are you like your parents? Do you want to be like your parents? Will you turn out like your parents no matter what happens? Is that good or bad? Will you lose control of yourself? Will you try to be different, but it turns out you can't be different? And I think at the start, he's trying to say, oh, I dedicated my life to space like my father, and I gave myself this passion and focus in my life. And then later, as he gets closer to Neptune, he realizes, like, no, I'm not my father. And then literally in that sequence on Neptune, has to let go of his father to go be himself. And some of the criticism I heard in Venice talking with some of my friends who saw it were that that sequence of him letting go of who his father was was the most meaningful part to them was realizing that, like, in, he, he, he gets to Neptune, realizes he is his father. He just killed people. He, he had his mission focus. And that he doesn't want to be that. So to, to not be that, he has to let go of that, including saving him, and then be someone else, which is, uh, I guess his greatest realization at that moment was that his father was never present in his life, and he was never there for his family. Um, and so his his solution to be different from his father was to go home and be present with his uh, wife or whatever she would be, girlfriend, whatever. And that that was his Insignificant biggest... other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but right. And of course, he, you know, his... as It's almost sad to think about the movie in that context that it, he had to go all the way to Neptune and have this experience to realize that. And unfortunately, I... that's what it takes for a lot of us. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. Um... <laughs> yeah. They give you all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. I mean, um, I, I actually thought that was one of the more effective bits. I did, I did think that they not the not the letting go. Um, that that to me smacked a bit too much of gravity and uh, and it felt a little bit too much that the lessons we'd learned in gravity we had to unlearn in order to make that sequence work. Um, <laughs> But the the bit where he very the very first moment where he he meets his father after having broken all the laws, having broken all the rules, having had to sort of deconstruct himself in order to reinvent himself and go into the edge of his own uh, you know personality, I guess. And he meets his dad after all that effort, and his dad goes, uh, "I got work to do." And I just thought that that was a brilliant that was a really good moment because it was like. Um, you know, you you came all this way sort of for your for your hug, and you're not getting it. You know, you your your dad is a bit of a bastard, and he's not going to stop being a bastard just because you spent all your time building him up to be this sort of uh, mission. You know, he's not going to complete you. He's he, you know the reason he wasn't there is the reason why you won't get a happy ending out of him because he's really not that interested in you. Yeah, you know? and he he and literally so says that. that yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and um, well, it's anticlimactic, definitely, but it's kind of quite honest. Um, you know, it's it's kind of uh, yeah. I I I I I thought that was a good moment. I could have just done with a bit more of Tommy Lee Jones and a bit more yes understanding yeah. his journey rather than it, it. It just felt a little bit rushed. And and I mean, this is a more general criticism of the whole film. I just felt the tone shifted sometimes. It wasn't like the tone shifted because the tone was always the same, but the actual things you were seeing seemed radically different. So like the space monkey was one good example, 
But at the very end, you've just had that sort of emotional sequence. If it landed or not is up to you. But that emotional sequence of him getting rid of Tommy Lee Jones and unhucking and everything. And then he surfs through ice rings, like in <laughs> Dark Star. And I, I was like, this is Dark Star. What We've gone from, you know, uh, Tree of Life. I to, uh, totally forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, remember uh, very vividly now the person sitting next to me scoffing and laughing hysterically, like hating this movie the whole way. They hated it. They thought everything was stupid. And 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 then that happened and like he almost left. He right. almost left the movie. Like it was like this is so ridiculous. But <laughs> it's okay, right? I mean, it's okay to have like some crazy shit like that happen in this movie. Right? Or was it too much? You think it was a little too much? I just, it just felt very, it just felt all over the place. I just did it. It was like it was having an identity crisis. You know, it's like mm. uh, each audio track and each video, each scene um, was doing something that was not speaking to the other parts of the production. You know, it was like, mm. well, we'll have this surf scene. And that was done by the same guy, the second unit director who shot the space monkey and who shot the Moonlander. <laughs> sort of race the cowboy scene through the through the on the moon surface which was great which was fun but which was just an, like a very bog standard action movie you know the minute you saw that the guy accompanying him had a picture of a daughter on the screen uh tacked onto his screen you just thought okay he's dead because that's <laughs> pathos you know mm-hmm. It, it had those moments, and then it had these more meditative moments, and then it had this the, these more the, the traveling moments, and it just didn't feel like the whole thing was actually stuck. They, they'd actually sat down and said, "Okay, we're making this movie." It just felt like a hodgepodge. Of, I do, uh, I do kind of disagree, though. I feel like you have yeah, to okay. have those those checkpoints. It's like the way they used to talk about westerns, right? Where it's like a it, it's a lot of silence interrupted by brief periods of violence and 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 that's what makes the western so good but the difference is that all that silence is tension right and so you have tension that's building to a point in which the string breaks and that's what also makes i think a lot of tarantino movies effective but in here it's the opposite they go with anti-tension right it's like nothing 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 something nothing 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 something and it does become a little, it's it sort of, it, there was no context until it happened that he was going to space, um, he was, that he was going to surf through Neptune's ring. Like yeah. on paper, that's awesome. That's so cool. Um, if I had described this movie to somebody and only explained the action sequences, there's a moon, there's a, a, a an epic chase through the craters of the moon between space pirates and Brad Pitt's convoy, and there is a, a rogue space monkey that's loose and has killed everybody on board and almost kills Brad Pitt, and then he also space surfs through Neptune's rings. You'd be like, best movie ever. I'm going to see it right now. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't I, think I that's think it was... the right movie. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's the thing is, when I was describing it to someone, they were saying, that sounds wonderful. And it kind of it kind of does, but it's it's um, it's the proximity of the two things. It's so like, is he still thinking about his dad when he's going through those, he's surfing through this ice ring, or is he going, wee, 
know, whoa, this is amazing. It just, I, I don't know. I was, I was really, um, it, like, I don't know. In a film like Gravity, you felt that the action was really organic to the, and I don't think Gravity has the ambition of Ad Astra by, by any means, but it just always felt very organic. It always felt very tonally uh, consistent, you know. Well, in Gravity, what I thought was interesting was the subtlety of a hidden message of birth, right? Of rebirth. Mm. And sometimes you had that, you had those visuals like her getting into the fetal position with like the umbilical cord. And those, those moments were there, but it was never this underlying theme that they sort of added on or hope you see. So there's, there's a lot to consider, I think with Ad Astra that might um, require a second viewing or third viewing, but I just don't think it's deep enough to get there. I think there are interesting ideas worth discussing to have an hour and a half podcast. Um, but it, it, you know, it's not, it's, it's our, it's us kind of coming up with a lot of this on our own more than it is the movie showing it and us praising the movie for it. And so I just never know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but when it comes to this, I, I think it's cool that this movie got made. Like sometimes I just have to stick, take a step back from my critique of a movie and think, have I really ever seen anything like this? Despite it being very derivative, it is also very unique and not the kind of movie mm. that gets made these days. Um, and, and so I'm really glad when you can see that clearly the people who made it really wanted to make this movie. It wasn't because a studio said, Mr. Brad Pitt, you haven't been to space. Let's get you out there. <laughs> Go find a script. You know, it was it was it seems pretty clear that the people who made this movie really wanted to make this movie and whether the studio gets in the way and kind of takes some of that personal vision out um, or whether or not it just never was fully formed yet. I don't know. I usually wait for the commentary track to figure that out because you can kind of see, but, and and the deleted scenes, but I, I really liked this movie. I really wanted to love this movie. Like right now it's, uh-huh. I have a running list of my top movies of the year. And right now it's like number 10, which means it, it, based on what's coming out and the movies I haven't seen that some of you already have, uh, it'll probably might not even make my top 20 for, to be honest. And, and I really thought this movie was going to be like top three, if not number one, when it was mm-hmm. being developed and coming out and being promoted. So I'm disappointed by it, but I, I still I'm really really glad that I that it exists. I agree, Luke. Actually, this makes me want to mention one of the other things that really bothered me about it. Um, probably the most the, or the biggest thing that bothered me about it was the way. And I know this is what has to happen in sci-fi now and related to current events in the world. But the way where he need, when we get there, you're hoping there's intelligent life and they're hoping that there's something and they get there and he's just like, nope, there's nothing. And I'm like, I just want a mo- I just want a sci-fi movie to like get to that point and just be like, oh, we did find life, <laughs> you know. And and one of the one of the you know whether it be we found life and they just don't give a shit about humans because we're insignificant, or whether it be you know we found life but it exists you know a billion light years away so we can't reach it or anything. But like everything, I mean, even Interstellar, man, we it's like two and a half, two hours, forty five minutes of Interstellar, and there's not an ounce of life in it anywhere. 
And that's all of the modern sci-fi filmmakers are doing that. I don't know why. It's just, I think it's just the trend in, in sci-fi filmmaking right now. But, like, I had that hope with this one that maybe we'd get there and, like, Tommy Lee Jones would be like, we found life, but it just doesn't matter. Like, we, you know, we still got to solve our own problems. But that... I don't know. That bothered me in the in the greater context of what this movie was, I, and and despite enjoying some of these moments like you, Mike, it it it's just not on the level I wanted to love it. And I I'm not gonna blame it because it didn't do that, but that just like if it if it if if there was that moment, I probably would have loved it a little bit more. But besides that, and I know that again, that's the point of the film that just really bothered me. I think we're just in a yeah. bit of an existential moment yeah where, I, know, I know yeah no i know you know but just to kind of <laughs> contextualize it i think that there is um there there is this idea that we are responsible for our own planet and that we've destroyed it and therefore we're responsible for it and i think another earth is still like my favorite movie about this what else is out there concept mm-hmm. um but I would like to see that movie. I would really like to see Contact, but as the alien race is cynical and says, y'all fucked up your planet, yeah, you're not going to yeah. fuck up ours. Yeah. So uh, yeah, just die and, and just shut up and die. Yeah. And then, you know, just leave the leave the, the universe to the rest of us more responsible. I think that's almost they, like... Aren't they no, making the three-body pl- problem on Amazon or somewhere? I mean, that would be the Chixing Lu um, novel, the Chinese science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Um, have you read these these books? I haven't. What it's called the th- the, the three the body. three body plump problem. Okay. And it's uh, uh, and it's basically about they discover that there is it, the idea of the concept is the the concept of the dark forest, which is. If you light a fire in a forest, then other people can see you. And if other people can see you, then there's a mathematical possibility that they will be hostile and they will try to kill you. Also because, uh, and, and that would be so catastrophic then that any, any civilization which has any intelligence at all in the universe will not advertise where it is because hmm. it, it's not worth the catastrophic risk of being destroyed. Right. It's not worth gambling on the the goodness of the other potential civilizations. So this is an epic trilogy by one of the best science fiction writers at the moment called Chixin Lu. I think I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Mm. Uh, he's a Chinese um, writer. He's amazing. Uh, he, they, they just made a, not a great movie, uh, The Wandering Earth, on Netflix. A, a big budget. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sci-fi. I know that one. Yeah, yeah. That's great. It's, it's not a great. It's based on his novella. <laughs> it's 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 not super it's fun. But it's okay. Yeah, it's okay, and it's got ideas that are that are that are interesting. But it's nowhere near as good as his writing. So um, yeah, I'd point you in that direction. And th- apparently, they're making either a movie or a TV show based on his uh, on his uh-huh. biggest work, which will be massive because oh, yeah. you know. The, They'll pre-sell it to China, and it will be it'll be huge. You know, I, I guess I'm say that you could make a really interesting uh, adaptation now about that from an immigration perspective or a global immigration. You know, I feel like what you were describing and what could be a really interesting parallel to what's happening in not only America but globally with refugees is to allow the wandering Earth situation. I think that movie does essentially this. 
but um, to have something a little bit more controlled and not have it. How much did the movie cost? It was like three hundred million or something. Like this yeah, one, Astra. Well, Wandering Earth. Oh, 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 Wandering Earth. Yeah, it was the most expensive yeah. movie in Chinese history or something. Right, right. I, I think this those stories actually really benefit from a more uh, simplistic perspective or. A, not an indie budget, but a smaller scale movie. Like Ad Astra is the right scale, I think, yeah. to tell us the kinds of stories we're talking about. I just think it may have been a, a little bit too too unique, too specific to the vision of the director uh, to really hit the nail on the head the, the way it didn't. It didn't make a ton of money. It didn't become a global phenomenon of a movie. And I'm not sure it ever planned to either. Yeah, that Gray has problems with his films breaking out in that way. Um, yeah, because Lost City it. of Z is the kind of movie that like you you would be hard pressed to find a non um, you know professional movie person who's seen it. You just yeah. would, and yet it is it is a very secretly hidden gem of a movie. It, it is great, and I, I wish more people would see it. And I think we're going to end up with that same problem here with that. Yeah, Astro. of course, of course. Yeah, um, he's, he's he's huge in France as well, isn't he, Gray? He's uh, got a. Uh, they really love him in in France. Um, but I know what you mean. He strikes me very much as a sort of mid level filmmaker. He's you know he he works on medium budgets and he, but he never he he's never really broken out and got that huge audience. That um, mm-hmm. wasn't the he, that he was the victim as well of Joaquin Phoenix's. Um, uh, mockumentary that he did because he was on the press tour for Two Lovers, one of his movies. Oh, when right, he right. he did the Letterman interview and he did all those interviews as a, ma- and I, I remember James Gray being really really pissed off because <laughs> um, it was like fucking hell. You're supposed to be, uh, you know, promoting my film and no one's going to go and see it because you're onto this Casey Affleck sort of misconceived art project which which actually i really enjoyed but you know i'm so happy you brought that up because i was (laughs) doing a little background on on james gray you know recently and i was like oh he had a little joaquin phoenix stretch here i mean we own the night is one of my favorite gangster movies uh, actually i know a lot of people don't like it but i've watched it a number of times and i really like it um it's not one of the best i I, just please don't get me wrong it's just i really like it um but yeah, like I was always curious if James Gray was in on that or if, you know, if they had a little discussion and he was like, I'm going to do this, but it's going to help get some more attention to two lovers. And it obviously didn't. Or if he was angry. Uh, so that's the first well, time I've I ever heard he was, I think he was that quite, he didn't like it. Yeah, I think he was quite angry because I think two lovers, it was meant to be Joaquin Phoenix as this romantic lead. And he was turning up like, uh, you know, the absolute antithesis of the romantic Hollywood <laughs> lead uh, on primetime TV. And he was not selling the film. You know, nobody watched the Letterman interview and went and knew the name of the movie after it would fi- had finished, you know? Yeah. That is interesting. <laughs> um, this, well, as much as we could go on to James Gray, I don't know if we should continue down that route. But is is there anything else in Ad Astra that you really wanted to mention? I would only say my my two last points on it were that 
Um, I, I love the look of the Neptune sequences, this like deep blue that I love. And I also really love the lunar sequences, which we talked about. But is there anything else you guys want to mention specifically about Ad Astra that we haven't already covered? I mean, the, the, the score is, we talked about it, I guess. Yeah. You, you guys didn't really have anything to say. Well, I love I love uh, Max Richter, and I remember him. You know, I listened to his stuff sort of independent of his soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm rewatching Leftovers at the moment, mm-hmm. and his his music is used so effectively in that show. Um, but I think I think what you said earlier, Mike, is absolutely right. He definitely has a wheelhouse that he's very comfortable in. And he definitely hits sort of certain emotion. He's very good at, you know, sexy melancholy, you know. <laughs> so your Daniel Day-Lewis in, in unbearable lightness of being kind of levels of sadness, but at the same time, you know, fuckable sadness. Um, and he, and, it, and, and, it, and it's, it's good, but I, the, the, the sort of flip side of that, the slightly negative side of that is that when you're aware of what it's doing, it can become sort of cloying and it can and it can often be in place of emotion like a placeholder for emotion rather than expressive of emotion so you you can sort of hear the music coming in and going okay this is where i begin to feel this is it um and if the, the if the images or the story isn't carrying the weight then it feels a bit cheap to just have the music do that do that for but that said i mean it's great it's a great soundtrack so yeah. You know, it didn't um, it didn't hit me as much as his other work. I mean, like yeah. I know the piece in Arrival wasn't something he wrote for Arrival, but it's used in that way where you're like, oh, it's so you know, I just start crying when I hear it. But this there wasn't a single music cue in this that made me feel emotional. I just love hearing his music. And I don't know what it was. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. If, yeah. That piece is used in um in Shutter Island as well to similarly yeah. is it on the nature of daylight i think it is oh yeah and yeah i think that might those... be the most used piece of yeah. music in cinema yeah it's becoming the adagio for the strings by samuel barber of our times really yeah it is and i wish i, I mean on one hand i wish people stopped using it on the other hand i wish people would use richter more as like a let's have him write from scratch but i know that's incredibly hard because I guess he just doesn't do it much. And I'm also very curious what this whole uh, Lauren Balfe thing is. Like, wh- like, it reminds me of Daft Punk and Tron, where they did the score, and then, like, months before release, Disney freaked out and was like, there's not enough good material. And they hired another, I think it was another Zimmer guy, to, like, fill in the gaps that they needed. And the same kind of thing makes me think about this is what happened here. And Richter was just like, I don't care. And they're like, all right, fine, we'll hire this other guy. And and they we don't the, know what is what. They did the same thing with Blade Runner, um, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where Johan Johansson did the whole score. And then they called in Zimmer and basically replaced him. And why they didn't just have Vangelis do it is a... Yeah, that, yeah. that's that's a question i have and also mother johan johansson also wrote an entire score for mother right. and then aronofsky went you know what i think it's better without any music yeah um and it's a kind of i those are two soundtracks i would really love them to release but i'm not sure given that um johansson is no longer with us uh whether that's ever going to happen yeah i thought i read that that was never going to happen unfortunately but yeah I agree with you. I, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I, a Blade Runner score by that guy, it's going to be something interesting to hear, regardless of whether it was appropriate for the for the film or not. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I I will make two small little itty bitty points here. One uh, about the movie. One is I I don't I don't get the Ad Astra um, title. Why not just call it To the Stars? I mean, I get. <laughs> I, look, I'm. It's just. It's. I'm not the kind of person who's like, oh, you're so pompous. Uh, I just, it's just like, why, why bother? Just call especially, it to the stars. Like, especially because in the title sequence, and I, I don't yes, know if it does this all over the world, but it literally shows to the stars and then it fades into Ad Astra. And I'm like, it's so funny that he had to do that. Right. And I doubt half the people in the audience got that that's what that actually meant. Yeah. Um, the other thing was, I was just doing a little digging, hoping I would find a cool tidbit and I didn't. Uh, the name uh, Cepheus, which is the name of the ship, has not a deeper meaning that would be related to the story. Cepheus in the constellation is a king. Uh, you could probably create something there, but I don't think it, it. I thought maybe there would be like a Greek mythology story about a father and a son, but there isn't. Well, the only thing He's I read not. about it was that Cepheus apparently has like one of the biggest black holes in our entire universe. But that, again, you could overanalyze that to mean whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, I was just, yeah. No, sorry, I was, I was, um, well, uh, just to what Mike was saying about Ad Astra, the title, uh, there was a computer game in the 1980s called Ad Astra on the, on the ZX Spectrum, which was, I'm not sure if it got out of the UK. It was a very, uh, a very, very early gaming computer. Um, so that was in my head, which was in the head of practically nobody else, I think, in the cinema. Um, it, it did, I mean, that didn't, that didn't bother me particularly. I, I wasn't, that wasn't, uh, I mean, the only thing I would say sort of in, in closing my comments anyway, would be, um, I, I definitely would like to go and see this film again. I definitely would rewatch it because I, I do have annoying insecurity that you, you can't all be wrong, surely. This this mm. is there must be something. There must be more to this film than I got. Maybe uh, I wasn't in a great mood that morning, and maybe I'll watch it and I'll I'll see layers, or maybe my expectations lowered. I'll watch it and 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 find much more to appreciate in it. So I mean, I am. It's not. It's not so bad that I would say, oh, I'm never. You know, I'm not not going to waste any time on that anymore. I definitely will give it a rewatch, but I have a sort of inkling that it won't change much. I, that's exactly my experience when I rewatched it. I was like, there, there was nothing more I gained here. It is so calm of a film that just, you know, I like by the end, I'm like, mm, okay. Um, the what? only other thing that I loved in my second watch was this final transition at the end, which is like when he's leaving from the explosion, he sets off, and there's this like, sh it's a transition shot of the stars. And the rocket, you know, flies away and disappears into the blackness. And then without having to cut, it just pulls back from the stars into the window of his ship as it begins to enter Earth's atmosphere. And I was like, ah, that's so cool. But it's just like such a simple visual thing. Mm. And if anything, the visuals, I think, are the, the, the best. But other than that, I didn't, I didn't gain any more insight, which is exactly what I thought would happen. I thought like, oh, like you, John, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get more out of it. And then I was just like, no. Nah. This is it's almost the same experience I had the first time, and I felt the same way this time watching it, which it solidified my feelings on it, which is that I don't love it as much as I want to, but it also 
didn't provide any more insight that I hadn't particularly noticed the first time around. Um, and I think even all the religious context, having read some pieces about it, didn't really add that much more to it. Um, the only thing that I saw the second time around was that the, there's almost an ambiguousness to uh, Tommy Lee Jones at the end because he says he says both we found nothing and he says we found something. And I think in the craziness of his mind, you're you're thinking he's bullshitting you when he says we found something. And that later when he says there's nothing, that's his serious side and his honest side. But other than that, that was that's, that's all I found in it. How many people do you think are going to listen to this episode? They're, they're, they might start and like 30 minutes through be like, oh, it's so boring. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, yeah, I, 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 honest question, like, like how because many people I, do you think I, are actually interested in talking about Ad Astra after seeing it? Well, but I was thinking about this like, hey, do we need <laughs> to talk about this movie? But the only reason I really wanted to was because I feel like there is there's something to it. And of course, people have been waiting to, to talk about it and hear about it. Um, we managed to talk about it, I think, pretty without stretching for an hour and 45 minutes here. So right. yeah. there's, there's a lot of like films I see, which I could not have more than a five minute conversation about. I'm just like, there's just, you know, I don't give two shits about it. I don't even care if it has something to say. I'm just like, Ugh. but at Astra, even though I think all of us agree that we don't love it by any way, you know, we normally measure our movies. We love there's the, at least we have been able to have a conversation about it, which is, I think the point. And and if anything, I hope this just reminds people that James Gray is a filmmaker <laughs> worth following and that he, he he makes interesting films that aren't just forgettable films. I don't yeah, know. James, James, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows if there's someone... Now I want to go... I've, ne- I've never actually seen Two Lovers, and now I really want to go back and actually watch it. And Honestly, uh, if I was James Gray and I made this movie... And I got the reception that it got. I would be listening to every podcast about it, but does, because there's just a, it's just deathly quiet out there about this movie. Yeah, but but by now James Gray I think is used to that. Like ever since Two Lovers, which was 2008, I think, like no one gives a shit about his films anymore except for critics. So there's like they'll play at a festival, the critics will oh, go I crazy. Hope he's not them. listening. And then like that's it. And then they'll just never they'll never play at the box office and like a few other movie people will see it and then that's just it. And it's like I, I like him as a filmmaker. I do hope that he gets the chance to make a movie that's it, it, like explicitly a, a big movie that people just people have to see. Because I, I don't think it's his fault. I think it's mostly just the stories he's told are not really the kinds that drive people to the movies. Now I'm not saying he should make a Marvel movie. I just, I, I wonder what he's got to do to get on the map for regular people. You know, like for for me to say James Gray and people not think he's a musician, because that sounds that's like a musician's <laughs> name. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but, yeah. I mean, to be to be, uh, it's funny that I think a film like this. I want to talk about it a bit more than films I love because it it puzzles me how it can be nearly so good and yet not make it and it, the the sort of mechanics of that are kind of interesting um yeah i i don't know if this is this i doubt this is going to break through but then again you know intelligent science fiction you know frequently falls and even like uh what was the tom cruise emily blunt film that had edge of tomorrow oh, edge of tomorrow you know. yeah yeah that's a great piece of intelligent uh, uh, yeah. sci-fi, and it it went nowhere. And you know, yeah. it's um, 
I mean, I think that's that's been reassessed. So I think people people have discovered it on DVD afterwards and th- and streaming platforms and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's 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 not easy for for sci-fi out there if it's not you know a pre-existing Marvel property or something like that. Yeah, I had always thought that the resurgence of Star Trek and Star Wars in this last decade would be a chance for sci-fi to sort of regain that ground. And my th- my hope was always like people will be interested in Star Trek and sci-fi, uh, Star Wars again, and get interested in sci-fi in a deeper sense. And then all these filmmakers will make these films, and people will go see and discover them. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. Like every sci-fi film I freaking love, no one ever sees it, <laughs> no matter what. Even for the last decade, like this this Swedish one, Aniara, which I think you saw, Mike. Um, I really love, but like I, c- I can't get anyone to, to even think of it and to watch it and to want to be interested in it. And it's it's tough because it's like I thought the the Star Wars would make people sci-fi crazy again. May I don't know, maybe Avatar 2 will get people in the mood again to go <laughs> to go deeper into it. But I think it's just like people want and you know I I really do believe this is what the studio dealt with is I think people want that like Star Wars-esque action sci-fi stuff, which is what also Gravity sort of spoon-fed people was just like a 90-minute pure action from start to finish kind of sci-fi concept. And that that's what people want. They want space battles and laser guns and, you know, all of it. And then, of course, you know, the Amazon series and Netflix series can fill in those gaps with all this other stuff. And now there's this abundance of that sci-fi. And the intelligent, quiet, meditative sci-fi doesn't go as far as it used to. 2001, I don't remember the box office for it, but I think it's only gained notoriety through years of time and through years of analysis and of course thankfully films can go through that and gain more recognition over time and hopefully they will and i mean as a sci-fi nerd i love this analysis on them because of course there's something to them and of course they're they're always reflective of the current state of society and in our world at the moment and they're always reflective of uh, our current state of science too at the moment we're in this current trend of sci-fi movies that are very realistic like, I believe Ad Astra, to as much of it could possibly be, is as real to space travel as they could get, which is way different than, you know, 50s and 60s sci-fis and even 80s and 90s sci-fis were totally different. But now that's the realm we're in where at least science is making them be more realistic. And where that goes from here, who knows? We'll see. We'll see. Hey, so to close this out before I don't want to hit two hours about Ad Astra. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one will hit two hours about Ad Astra. Just add it's some Max are... Richter. When I'm speaking, just replace it with Max Richter and it'll be fine. <laughs> God, I wish I could put Max Richter behind everything I do. Uh, so I want to finish with a question, which is going back to a comment I made earlier. Um, how very conceited of me. The 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 fact that this stars Brad Pitt as this character is there anybody else you could you you can picture right off the bat like starring in the, as that character in place of Brad Pitt Matt Damon <laughs> Matt Damon yeah he could just be the uh, where is my father why is he oh, not that's there? your Matt Damon impression no no you did it better Mike. Daniel Day Lewis. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> but his father would have to be like Clint Eastwood, just because there of age. Situation. No ninety-year-old actor anymore. Uh, too sounds like it's ready to go. 
That's the other thing, by the way. How long has Tommy Lee Jones been out there? And wouldn't he, would, would the age situation that happens in Interstellar be relevant? Mm, no, because he's uh, not. Neptune's not far uh, enough away, right? Oh, no. He, of course he would be crazy for having lived 15 to 20 years in solitude in the far from Earth as you could possibly be within our solar system. But, like, the timing? No, no. You mean relativity, man. All right. Michael Caine would be Daniel Day-Lewis's father. Mm. Jeez. That would, see, be, I would, that that would be a better film. Yeah. Inherently, it would be. <laughs> I'm, it I'm already excited. It, it would never get made. And Paul Thomas Anderson can direct it. <laughs> well, you can't, you can't do... Paul Thomas Anderson's never going to do a space movie because you can't do uh, dolly shots in space. You can't do someone diving into a swimming pool and, uh, exactly. and the camera following them. Yeah, He refuses. He will never do a movie that you can't have a 200-foot dolly track on. Yeah. Uh, well, wait a minute. 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's Well, yeah, but the camera was... Wasn't the jogging, camera stationary in the thing? What was the camera yeah. doing? Uh, uh, it's still moving relative to something. Okay. Yeah. Well, with space spaceships, you could easily make a really cool, like, long corridor. So that's fair. Yeah. Jack. He'll be in there. All right. <laughs> well, this is fun. Yeah. Thanks it's for been nice talking to you guys. Um, thanks for joining us, John. Where can people find you? I know you're on Twitter, and where else do they? Where else can yeah, they read on, you and listen to you? I'm on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D R J O N T Y. Um, and then uh, I've got a, 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 a web pay a website which is very poor, very very amateurish, but it's just my name dot com, so johnbleasdale dot com. Uh, and yeah, and if you want to find anything else, just Google me. Cool, thank you. Um, and yeah, I'm glad to to have you on, and I'm sure I'll see you, if not earlier at Berlin than in Cannes next year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be fun. You yeah. won't find me. You won't see me because I don't get to go to any film festivals. <laughs> Poor Mike uh, has come to stay on, home Mike. and work. I'm waiting for one that takes my movies. In the meantime, you can find me at Eisentower30 on Twitter. Uh, as always, at First Showing and First Showing.net. And thank you all for listening. Tune in again soon. <laughs>